So I have kids. Of course, you love your kids, and it's difficult to raise them. Small kids are very easy, I find. The biggest downside of having a very small child is they are very boring. <laughs> yeah, they want to show you they love you by talking to you all the time, but everything they know, you already know. literally zero value add in any of those conversations. <laughs> but you do it anyway because they're your kids, you know? And you know what people say, small kids, small problems, big kids, bigger problems. And the reason is that as your kids get older, you have to discipline them properly. And I find this very stressful because I'm born and raised in India. So what I consider robust, healthy, high-quality parental discipline <laughs> is frowned upon in this part of the world. That's not true. It's illegal. I know because I have checked. And I want to have really well-behaved kids, but that is no use to me if I am in jail. So, I have to learn what you guys do here, and the big thing here is Teach your kids about action and consequence using a multitude of techniques. So you have something called star chart. You know what star chart is? Yeah, no, let me tell you, sir. Star chart is you find something vaguely not negative that your child possibly might be able to do and then work it into the conversation and give them a star. Thank you for not kicking me in the face today. Here's a star. <laughs> And then the other one, action and consequence, naughty step. You've been terribly behaved. Kindly go relax on the staircase. <laughs> and I was like, I cannot get on board with this. So what do we have from my culture that I can somehow glom onto this so it makes sense to me? And then I thought, of course, our parents talk to us about action and consequence, but the way they do it is they implicate us from the time we're very young in their death. <laughs> and they use this as a way to guide our behavior. Um, let me give you an example. Let me find someone who... Sir, what is your name? John. John, can I use your name for this? Okay, so John, imagine you're four years old and your mother will say to you, John! I told you to put one spoon of chocolate in the milk. Why have you put two? Because you want me to die. <laughs> Very effective with small children, you know? <laughs> Focuses them. All right. I'm glad you guys like that. Uh, my name's David. I'm the pastor here. And that was uh, Sindhu V, who is a British Indian comic, as you guys saw and uh, who is hilarious. And that is actually one clip of, of one part of a seven minute clip we will put on Facebook. I wish or I could have showed you the whole thing because it is absolutely uh, hilarious. But uh, you can go watch it there. But the reason I uh, wanted to show that video is because today we are continuing in our series, Parental Guidance Please, where we're trying to get some guidance and some big picture perspective on what we're called to do uh, as parents and grandparents and raising the next generation as a church. But today we're actually focusing in a little further and, and speaking specifically about uh, discipline, which Sindhu V uh, talked about in a very effective way, right? Um, 
And, uh, and today's message is titled, On Spankings and Hugs. And, and let me say that the S word there that raises eyebrows, uh, uh, spanking, I really have no interest in talking to you about spanking and what I think about it and what you think. To me, that sounds just like a great way to get in a fight with a stranger. And that's not why we're here uh, this morning. What that really is, is a chance for us. Is a, is, it was a hook to kind of, of, of move us into a, a bigger conversation that I want to have that is really about the purpose of discipline and the purpose of grace in our lives and how those things work together, how, 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 how grace and, 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 and uh, God's law work together to, to create character formation and to help God work in our lives. And that's really what we're after uh, because it's a really important part of what we're trying to do and raising up the next generation. And frankly, this is a message that, that uh, is bigger than a parenting conversation. What we're talking about here this morning is really at the heart of the gospel uh, as we think about our Heavenly Father and how He interacts with us. And so I'd, I'd really encourage you to pay attention. Uh, try to follow along. Uh, there's some really important stuff we're going get, to get into this morning. We're going to read from Romans chapters 7 and 8 going to be a little different. If you have a Bible or want to follow along on your phone or grab the one, I'd encourage you to, to pull it out and, and open up. I think it's page 915 in the Bibles in your chairs. We're going to, Romans 7 and 8 are dense. We're going to kind of drop down into it and kind of study it in that way, but we're going to get into them in a moment. But when we do, I'd encourage you to, to follow along there. Why don't we go ahead now before we open up God's Word and we enter into this topic and, and pray. Lord Jesus, we quiet our hearts before you now um, so that we can come and hear and see. Lord, uh, would you, as we open up your word, uh, soften our hearts? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you, by your grace, help us to see things that we need to see? And by the power of your spirit, speak to us exactly where we need to hear this this morning, Lord. Would you give your mercy to me, may the words of my mouth, and Lord, with the meditations of all our hearts as we get into this, and we study this, and we think about your work in our lives, and the way you call us to raise up these kids and this next generation, would, would you be our rock and our redeemer? We lean into you in these things, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so every once in a while, I like to ask my kids uh, a question. And really, the, these questions are to just kind of see how I'm doing as a parent, to see if anything's getting through. Lord, please let something be, get, be getting through, right? And, uh, and so we were driving the other day in the car, and I was thinking about this whole topic of law and grace, and I said, kids, I'm going to ask you a serious question, and I, I want you to give me a serious answer. Why do mommy and daddy give you rules? What is the purpose of the rules that we give you? And, uh, you know, like, this was one of the best answers I've ever heard. I need to frame this because I know these are going to be few and far between. But my oldest, Jesse, gave a tremendous response. I was so happy with it. He said this, rules are the things that keep you safe, help you have fun, and they also make you a little bit sad. <laughs> Isn't that great? Like, he got it, man. Rules are the things... They keep you safe, help you have fun, and they make you a little sad. I need to frame that and put it in my house, right? 
And, uh, and you know, he's so right. Like, rules, in, in each of those parts, rules are intended to keep us safe. One of the reasons we have them, when we tell a little child, you may not cross the street without holding the hand of an adult, we are trying to keep them safe. When we tell uh, a teenager and we say to them, uh, you are not allowed to go to that party on your own, and you must be back by 11, we do that in part because we want them to be safe, right? When we think about God's law and some of the things he said to us, do not commit murder, right? Do not steal, do not covet. A lot of that is so that we are able to live safely, right? That, that's a, a big part of rules. Jesse was also right. Part of what rules do is they enable us to have fun. It makes sense to me that Jesse actually would have given this answer because this is something I've been trying to drill into their heads as they have resisted rules as I have been trying to teach them different sports. Uh, we have established boundaries in sports and those boundaries exist, those rules exist, so the game is actually fun. And as my kids have resisted my rules, it has been absolutely miserable. I can't tell you how bad it's been trying to teach them baseball when Jesse says, no, Dad, I get five strikes instead of three. That's how we play. That's how I play. Jer says, no, Dad, that's not a travel. That's just my way of dribbling, <laughs> right? Like, it's been terrible, right? M rules enable things to have fun because they are common established boundaries that we live within. That's another important part of rules. Finally, Jesse was right. Rules do make us a little bit sad, right? Don't they? Isn't that like... There's a little tinge of sadness in, in most every rule. Uh, I'm sure you guys can think of rules that have made you sad. Uh, I, think of, I was thinking every time I drive by a beautiful lake that looks like it's absolutely stocked full of huge fish, and there's a sign that, there that says no trespassing. That makes me a little bit sad, right? Uh, it, it's funny. His brother Johnny piped up when he heard this, and he said, Dad, yeah, Dad, rules are always making me sad. And if you know Johnny, like, that makes so much sense. Johnny has a shirt that says this. I'm the reason they have rules, right? <laughs> so, so you get it, right? And, and as good as Jesse did, as true as those things are, there's a lot of other things, actually, that rules do that really we need to understand that sometimes I don't think we think about and actually that the Bible brings out in helping us understand the purpose in our lives, what they do, and really, when the Bible talks about it, it talks about God's law and God's, the law's purpose in our lives and what that law does. And what I want to do is then now open up this passage in Romans 7 and 8 and bring out three things that I want, I want us to see that, that the law does in our lives. And, and, and here's the first. Um, God's law helps us know right from wrong. God's law helps us know what's right and what's wrong. Let me read that. I'm going to open up with uh, Romans, 7, chapter, uh, uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 7. I'm just going to read that one verse. It says this. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. Let me read it again. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? No, the law is not sinful. That's what Paul says. Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not, known, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So let me give a little context here because we're dropping down into Romans 7 and this is dense stuff. This is thick theological stuff. And, and, and it, 
there's a lot going on. But to make a long story short, what Paul is really doing in chapter 7 is he's kind of making a defense of God's law. He's trying to help people understand its purpose and its place uh, in, in God's work in salvation, in history, and God's work in our own lives. And the reason he's got to do it is because after Jesus rose from the dead, there was a, a group of people uh, who, who had this idea that when Jesus uh, rose from the dead, the law was no longer needed anymore. It wasn't any part of, of God's plan. It didn't have any purpose. It even was bad, right? That's why he asked the question, is the law sinful? And what Paul knows is that wasn't true. Jesus actually said very clearly that the law still had a purpose and a place, right? Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, to live it out to its greatest extent. The law still had a purpose and a reason for existence. And what Paul is doing is combating this idea and helping us see the purpose of God's law. And really he does that by giving this first reason. This is one of the first things he says in saying that it's good. The law helps us what's, know what's right and wrong. To understand what's right and what's wrong. I would not have known what sin was, he said, had it not been for the law. The law makes us aware of sin. It helps us understand right from wrong. And this is an interesting one, interesting thing. I think we actually need to sit here for a moment because I think a lot of adults uh, say, well, I don't know about that. Like, we kind of push back on that because we think, um, you know, I, I think that I always knew what was right and wrong. Like, I have a conscience. I, I think that there are things that are just, just wrong. And I, I didn't need anybody telling me. I didn't need some man-made rule to tell me it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. And I think that uh, there may be some truth to that, but actually when we say that, we're speaking as people who have benefited from the law's work in our life already. I think that we aren't recognizing that, and I think that one of the ways that we can see that we actually had to learn right from wrong, to learn what sin was, is when we watch little kids whom, whom don't know, right? Uh, if you have little kids and you watch them, one of the things that, that will become apparent is a lot of times they don't know what's right and what's wrong. They just do, right? One, one example here. Two weeks ago, I got done preaching, and I sat down in the early service next to my son Johnny that I mentioned earlier. And Johnny was playing with a pen, and he put the pen on his middle finger, and he said, Dad, hey, look, I got a really long finger. And he goes, right? <laughs> and, and he gave me the finger. First time anybody's given me the finger after I got done preaching, right? But uh, Johnny... Johnny does this, and I have to explain to him what it means, right? Why did he do that? Because he's, he's ignorant. We're born ignorant. He didn't know. And that's an innocent example. That's a cultural thing. But, but there, there are plenty of things that kids do that are not so innocent, that are not culturally bound. And, uh, and for example, how many of you guys have had a parent or watch, a parented a child or watched a kid who is like three or four years old have a toy taken by uh, a younger kid and then turn around and <laughs> slug them, right? Yeah, you knew exactly where I was going. Every single one of my kids have slugged each other consecutively, right, down the line. And, and what has been so interesting to me as my, as my boys have done this, and Jordan has done it back to them, is, um, is when my boys did it, you know, Jesse was like three and he hit like a 10-month-old. He, he didn't think twice about it. He did not know it was wrong. He just knew that he had a toy taken, and he wanted it back, and they took it. And so he whacked them, right? And, uh, and I, he didn't feel any guilt. I had to talk to him and say, 
son, you might have felt this, but you cannot behave and respond in this way. It's wrong. Here's another example. How many of you guys have seen those videos where kids have those chocolate smears on their face, and the parent walks up to them and says, hey, did you eat any cookies? And the kid will look back at their parents and tell them a bald-faced lie. You know, no, I haven't eaten any cookies, chocolate smear and crumbs all over the face, right? Uh, you know what's interesting to me about that is nobody had to teach that kid to tell, to tell a lie. Nobody taught that kid to do that. They knew to do that instinctively. We know instinctively that we need to defend ourselves. If we think we're in danger, we will do what we need to do to not experience the outcome that we don't want to experience. Uh, uh, however, what we have to do with those kids is say, you may not tell that lie. That is not okay. I need you to tell me the truth, right? And that's because one of the things that we do, and when we act as the law in that way, is we help our children know right from wrong. And that's one of the things that the law does, that the Bible's bringing out here. It helps us understand the difference between right and wrong. Here's the second thing that the law does. The law gives us the grace of conviction. God's law gives us the grace of conviction. Let me uh, show you where that comes from in the text. It's a little further, verse 13, which says this. Did that which is good, did that which is good, he's referring to the law there, did the law which is good then become death to me? By no means, nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, the sin used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. It's dense, I want to read it again, so you guys can follow along the best that you can. Did that which is good then become death to me? So did the law, which, which is good, end up becoming death? And Paul says, no, by no means. Nevertheless, what's the reason? In order that sin might be recognized for what it is as sin, sin used what is good, it used the law to bring about my death so that through the commandment, through the law, I could see how utterly sinful sin was in my life, right? Um, so so uh, two things Paul is trying to do here in this one verse. And, and, and really the first is that he's trying to explain how the law, which is good, actually ended up with a bad result in his life. How the law, which God intended for good, which is good, ended up leading to his death. And by death here, he doesn't mean literal death. He means spiritual death. Like it broke his relationship with God messed up his world around him with others, right? It's, it's something that he's saying, like, the law did this. How did it happen? How did this, what, that which is good end up in my death? And, uh, and I found this analogy helpful when I was, when I was thinking about how this could happen. Uh, picture a surgeon's scalpel, right? So this is a really precise instrument that uh, in the hands of the right surgeon can do incredibly good things, right? It cuts deep. It will, it will uh, wound somebody for a time, but what, what it does in the right hands is ultimately a surgeon with a scalpel will create incredible healing and wholeness in a person's life. Thank God for the scalpel in the surgeon's hands. It's a good thing. However, if you, if you take uh, that same scalpel and you put it in the hands of a person whose, whose sin has the hold of them, who, who is angry, who's upset, who wants to do damage, they can take that same scalpel and they can cut somebody's throat. That thing which is good can lead to death. 
right? And, and I think that's the exact same thing that, that Paul is saying here about the law. This law that was good, that was intended for good, ended up leading to something really bad through my death. How did it happen? Well, that's really the second point he's making. It happened when, when sin, our utter sinfulness, got a hold of that thing and, and used it for evil in our lives, right? And that, that's the, the second point. When that happens, when we see something good turning into something evil, what we get to see is our sin condition. We, we see exposed our desperate need for, for help, right? The, the verse says, in order that sin might be recognized at, as sin, so that we could see sin for what it was, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, the sin in me would become utterly sinful. Like I would see how utterly terrible and how severe my need was for God. And when we see how, how, how bad it is, hopefully then God's law leads us to give us the grace of conviction. When we see how bad it actually is, then, then, then we have this ability to experience the grace of being able to change it because we're convicted, right? And, you know, I was thinking about a story that really kind of illustrates this. Um, and one that came to mind was actually the story of King David in the Bible and Bathsheba. Uh, if you're not familiar with that story, King David was God's anointed chosen ruler over Israel. He was an incredible king, absolutely incredible. And um, he was a broken human being. And one day, King David is, at, uh, is supposed to be out at war, leading, leading his people. He is not. He is at home. And he goes out on his rooftop, and sin raises up in his heart and grabs a hold of him. And he sees, bathing on a rooftop, this, this woman named Bathsheba. And he calls for her, and she comes to the palace, and he sleeps with her. And what's really interesting is that uh, in, in the Bible, what we don't see after David commits adultery is David showing any form of remorse at all. He, he's not repentant. He doesn't feel bad. He's just kind of done this thing. And, uh, and in fact, what happens is that David actually uh, uh, enters further into the entanglement of sin. He digs a deeper hole. Because when, he, when, when Bathsheba sends message to David, oh, oh, I'm married and I'm pregnant, he's got to figure out how to cover this thing up. And so he sends to, 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 for her husband, who's at war, named Uriah, to come home and, and stay a night with his wife so that hopefully they will sleep together and the baby will not look like his. That doesn't work in his plan. And so what does David do next? He takes uh, Uriah back out into battle, puts him on the front line as other people back off, and Uriah is killed. And so, so David has now just not only committed murder, he uh, committed adultery, he has now committed murder. And still in the text, we don't see him being repentant or convicted. It doesn't happen until there's this prophet named Nathan who comes up to him and, and acts as the law. And he says, David, he tells the story of a man who's done something terrible. He says, you are that man. And when David sees that and he hears that and he, and he realizes that he has committed murder and adultery, it's in that moment there finally in the text that he sees how utterly sinful his sin has become. And he is convicted and it's finally there that he starts to become repentant. And, 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 and allow for God's, God's forgiveness and grace to begin to work in his life. It was him seeing the utter sinfulness of his sin that finally opened him up to the conviction that he needed 
to, to, to change. And, and, and that's really what I think Paul is saying about the law. The law helps us see our deep state of need, and, and, and it exposes our hearts. And when that happens, then, then we're able to have this conviction, and that's where grace works. Let me say, um, one of the things I think is interesting about this in parenting is, is it's not just us who need this conviction. Man, your kids, if they don't have a conviction of their sin, uh, parenting becomes really, really difficult. Because what, what, do, uh, what do kids who don't think they have any spiritual need do to parents who think that they know what's better, right? They resist parents at every level that they can. I remember doing this with my parents. When I thought I was right about something, I didn't care about my parents' discipline. I didn't care about uh, their guidance or wisdom. I was going to head mine own way. And until I saw the utter sinfulness of my sin, I wasn't able to have my heart changed. And man, I think that's one of the most dangerous things in our lives, in anybody's life, but in your child's life. If, if, if they don't see that they need to be convicted of their sin, they're going to resist you at every single level. And, uh, and I think the law can sometimes help us have the grace to see our conviction and sometimes help our kids' hearts to change. And that, that, that's the second thing. There is one other thing that the law does that the Bible brings out here that's really important. And, um, and it's actually not what the law can do. It's what the law cannot do. And that comes to us in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Let me go ahead and read that for you all. Uh, here it is, 8, 1 through 3. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So there's some beautiful good news in this verse. It begins by saying, listen, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus because we don't live under the law anymore. There's a different law at work in our lives. But how do we get there? Well, the thing that I see that really sticks out to me when I think about the law and its purpose and it, it is actually this phrase that he, that he says next in verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do. What the law was powerless to do. We've just talked about the things that, that rules, that law does in our lives. But here what it's, what it's saying is that there are some things that the law cannot do in our lives. There, there are things that, that God's law and rules are unable to accomplish. And, uh, and that's really interesting. What is that? It begs the question, what is the thing that the law cannot do? And here's the answer. The law cannot change your heart. The law cannot change a person's heart. It, it can point to things, but it, it, can't, it can't change the heart. Right? Uh, the law can help us see uh, it can help us see our sinful heart. It can give us the grace of conviction, but it cannot change our sinful heart. It cannot do that. The law can tell us what's wrong, but it cannot keep our hearts from wanting to do wrong, right? And, and, and we know this. We know it in our own heart. When we know what we ought to do, and we still don't do what we know we ought to do, right? That, that's an example of that. The law doesn't change our heart. And, and, and parents, like, I think about how we see this, how I've experienced this, raising up kids, 
Uh, how, many, how many times have you asked your kids to abide by established rules? You've laid out expectations. You've said, this is the punishment. Uh, and you've said, please get your chores done. Stop hitting each other. Speak more respectfully to your mother. And, and you lay that out, and the discipline is clear. And, and does it change things? Does, do you have that conversation again? Nine years into being a parent, and I think I've realized I have talked until I'm blue in the face about certain things, and it hasn't had any different results. And that's because I think what this passage is saying is true, because the law can tell them what's wrong. It can create discipline, but it can't change their heart. And nothing's going to change until the heart of the person changes, right? And here's where this gets really relevant. And it was really eye-opening for me. There's a guy that I mentioned in week one named Paul David Tripp. He's written a lot of books on parenting that are excellent. And in, in one of his books, he, 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 he says this. He says, every parent knows that their child, that their children have to grow, mature, and change. And as a parent, you know that it is your job to help form character in your children, to help form in them obedience, respect, honesty, willingness, all those things in your children. So as a parent, you're going to rely on something to create that change in your children, to do that character formation. There is some tool as a parent that you're going to use again and again and again in the belief that it has the power to change your child. So he says, parents, uh, what is the tool that you are using? What is the tool that you are using? He says, step back from your life and think about what you've done in the last month or two. What is the thing that you're doing over and over again to try to help get your kids where you want them to be? You know what I, what I realized when I asked myself that question? My tool is the law. My tool is discipline. That, that is the go-to thing, my default as a parent. I lean towards the law. Maybe some of you guys can relate to that. I lay out expectations. Uh, we talk about things. If my kids do not listen, if they do not listen again, they get disciplined, right? I will, I will uh, take something away. They go to timeout. They get more chores. They get less tablet time, right? They, they clean the floorboards with a toothbrush, man. That is David. That is how David disciplines. But uh, what I think this, what I think Paul David Tripp helped me realize, and this, this scripture helped me realize, is on its own. That's not going to be enough to get them where they need to go. I don't think that that tool I'm using is going to shape their hearts and minds fully in the way it needs to be shaped. And, and the tool that I really need to, to, to start to use better, more, alongside discipline is God's grace. It's actually God's grace and, and our discipline that help do the character formation that our, that our children need. Like, like, please don't mishear me. I think discipline is still incredibly important. I am still going to discipline my kids again and again and again uh, uh, because I believe in it. I think that discipline helps teach us, like Sindhu V said, actions and consequences. I think we talk about discipline in very positive ways uh, when we think about like training for a marathon or working out, right? Or eating the right foods, right? I think that if you read the Bible, God actually tells parents that we really ought to discipline our kids. In fact, in Hebrews it says, don't you know that, that one of the ways God, that, that God disciplines 
those whom he loves as his children, right? Implying that, that if we love our children, we really ought to discipline them. There's a way to, to be too far into the gray side, right? And, uh, and, and, and it also implies that if we're not disciplining them, in a way we're not loving them in the way that we ought to, right? There's a grace even in discipline. But what I think I also, we also have to realize is that God's law and God's grace work together. And if, if they only get God's law, right, they're never going to get where they need to go. And so we have to show them we have to be a conduit of grace in their life so that, so that God's work can, can, can happen in their life. And that, that's, what, that's what Paul's saying. That's part of salvation. So let me encourage you. I encourage you to wield the power of grace in your parenting, in your grandparenting, when you're interacting with kids. Find ways, look for ways to show them tangibly God's grace. And I want to offer you two ideas on how to do that. First, try this. Ask your children for forgiveness. When you mess up, when you mess up, go to your kids and ask them for forgiveness. You know, not too long ago, I got upset at my children and I yelled at them louder than I should have. Uh, and to be honest with y'all, they, they really kind of deserved it. Um, they were being twerps, man, and they were not listening, though I had told them over and over and over again, and I was tired. You guys have been there right? Um, but uh, I, what did the law do in my life? It convicted me of my sin, and I felt convicted, and so I went back to my, son, my, my sons, and my daughter was also there, um, and I said, hey guys, uh, I'm sorry. Daddy yelled at you. He was too hard on you, and he disciplined you. He gave you too big a punishment, and I'm sorry, um, and then I said, would you forgive me? I asked them to forgive me, and I've done this a couple of times now. Um, and, uh, and you know, there's something really good and help, helpful and healthy that happens when I, when I lead that exchange, when I lead that interaction with my kids. Because what it does is it, it just opens up grace to be at work in our relationship. It really gives them some freedom. Firstly, it gives them the freedom to be vulnerable because they've just seen their dad be vulnerable. He said, I messed up. And, and now they know that they don't have to hide it or lie about it when they've messed up, right? Two, it gives, it gives them um, the freedom to tell me the truth, right? I just saw that I messed up. And now when they know I've messed up and I haven't told them yet, respectfully, they, can, they know that they can come to dad and have a conversation uh, about, about thinking that, that was too much, right? Um, and then... And then finally, it gives them the freedom to fail, right? Because I just told them that I failed. And they, and, and they know that it's going to be okay to fail. Dad fails too. And again, they don't have to hide it or lie, to it or, or lie about it or try to be perfect. And when I ask them to forgive me, um, I'm actually asking them to participate in grace. Not just receive grace, but give grace. And when they give grace, when they see me asking for grace, they have to forgive me in their hearts, which is shorthand for the gospel, right? And, and when they know that their dad needs forgiveness, they're going to be that much more open to forgiveness in their own lives, right? And that grace is going to help so many things. And, uh, and I offer you, you that. When you mess up, parents, grandparents, teachers, go tell your, your students, your kids, uh, I'm sorry, I messed up. Would you forgive me? Here's the next thing. 
that I think is really powerful, I've experienced is really powerful. Every once in a while, give your children unexpected gifts. Every once in a while, when they do not expect it, when they deserve uh, uh, punishment, significant punishment, let them go away scot-free. And let me explain what I, what I have in mind here. When I was in college, uh, I had a friend um, at the University of Illinois named Deepak who had a bike stolen. And, uh, and as, I, as I knew, Deepak's only mode of transportation was basically this bike, and he didn't really have money to uh, buy another bike. And I was living at home at the time with my parents, and I remembered that in our garage we had this really old bike that nobody ever rode. It was one of those, like, 70s bikes with, like, uh, curved handlebars and a basket, and my dad put a mirror on there. It would probably be worth, like, $1,000 today. I mean, it was a cool retro bike. But I didn't know that as a college student, and so I went to my dad, and I was like, hey, dad, my friend Deepak lost his bike. He needs a bike. Uh, could we go ahead and just give, give him this bike that's in the garage? And my dad looked at me, and he said, actually, no, David. I really like that bike. It was my bike, and, uh, and I want to keep it. I want to ride it again. And I, uh, being a wonderful son, did not listen to my father. I uh, chose to ignore what he had told me, and I got that bike, and I gave it to my friend Deepak, and <laughs> thinking self-righteously, oh, Dad doesn't need this bike. Deepak does, right? And, uh, and I said, Deepak, uh, here, use this bike until you know, you've got, you can buy another one, and then you can give it back to me, okay? So I gave him the bike. Guess what happened within five days? That bike, too, got stolen, right? Uh, and uh, I did not tell my father what had happened. I, uh, <laughs> I was scared, right? I, I was uh, feeling guilty. And uh, one day, my dad was out in the garage not too long after that, and he noticed his bike wasn't there. And so he came to me, and he said, David, do you know, do you know where my bike is? And I looked at my dad, and I came clean. I told him what had happened. And uh, I don't know if you've been there in this moment, but I could see my dad's anger. I could see his, his body language visibly change. I could see his facial expressions. I was terrified, right? I was expecting the worst of the law. And I remember my dad having this, this reaction, this visceral reaction, and then and also watching his body language change. And he looked at me, and he said, David, you messed up. But there is nothing we can do about it now. I forgive you. And then he walked off, and I never heard about it. That was almost worse than getting in trouble, to be honest with you, because uh, I felt so bad about what I had done. Um, and, and I got to see with clarity, like, the utter sinfulness of, of my sin. And, and what that did in my heart is it made me repent and feel remorse. But you know what it also did? It made me have such tremendous respect for my dad, who, who gave me grace that I didn't deserve and, and that I didn't earn and, and let me know that he loved me more than any bike or anything that was ever going to stand in our way. And here's why I think that it's such a helpful thing, because isn't that exactly 
what we need to recognize and see that God has done for us. That in our worst mistake, God didn't love us anymore. That in the most terrible thing we did, God forgave us wholly and completely in Jesus Christ, right? And, and the way that God moves in our lives is through our understanding of our need uh, as he gives us his grace, as we repent and then open up to him changing our hearts. And man, I never wanted to do anything like that to my dad ever again. It changed my heart. It made me listen. And that's what, that's what I think. There's going to be a time in your kid's life in the near future probably uh, where they mess up royally, right? And, and I think most of the time what we need to do is discipline them. They need to experience the consequences of their actions. But every once in a while, and maybe you'll feel it in the moment. Maybe the Spirit will work it on your heart. And maybe you could have a reaction like my dad did to me and let those kids off scot-free. And by doing so, I think what that'll do is it'll point them towards the heart of the God who loves them and will always love them and, and then can work in their lives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your mercy and your grace that you pour out, that you change our hearts with, that you help us give to others. And, and Jesus, I pray that we would see the depth of your love and lean into the, the strength of your promises, Lord, and know that by your grace we've been forgiven and by your grace we are free. And Lord, as we live into that grace, as we receive that grace, I pray that we could give it to, to these children that we love, that you love. And Lord, I pray that by that they would come to know in your name.